the story of a groundbreaking discovery and the efforts to keep our dirty earth germs to ourselves. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Back in 1967, Dr. Jocelyn Bell Burnell observed a curious set of radio pulses from a new type of telescope. Her findings would lead to a new star, a pulsar, and begin a new chapter of astronomical discovery. The findings were groundbreaking and paved the way for a new type of observation, radio astronomy. We'll chat with Burnell about the story of that discovery, where she sees the future of radio astronomy heading, and her work to get more women and minorities involved in STEM. Then, space is huge, but that doesn't mean you don't have to keep it clean. As we continue to venture into our solar system with robotic explorers and human missions, there's a greater need for good hygiene. On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we'll chat with planetary scientists from the University of Central Florida about keeping our dirty Earth germs off other planets and moons and why the search for life depends on it. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the latest space stories making headlines. NASA still doesn't know if Boeing will have to fly another uncrewed mission of its Starliner capsule. The uncertainty comes even after an initial investigation of the mission wraps up. A joint investigation by NASA and Boeing uncovered 61 corrective actions relating to the flight late last year after it failed to dock with the International Space Station. Many of those issues relate to the software of Starliner, which is designed to carry astronauts to the station. A problem with the onboard timer caused the spacecraft's thrusters to fire at the wrong time. Other software issues were also discovered during the mission. NASA's head of human spaceflight, Doug Lavero, says Boeing will need to fix those problems before launching humans in the capsule. And then NASA will evaluate that plan, will evaluate the results of their work. We will do our own inspection of the results of their work, and then we'll be in a position to decide whether or not we need another test flight or not. Lavero says he's classifying the incident as a, quote, high-visibility close call, which will require additional investigation. A similar 2013 incident received the same classification when an astronaut's spacesuit filled with water during a spacewalk. Meanwhile, a capsule full of supplies and scientific experiments has arrived at the International Space Station after launching from Cape Canaveral last week. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. And liftoff of the Falcon 9 rocket and cargo dragon on the final flight of the Dragon 1 spacecraft taking research designed to improve life on Earth and lead discovery in space. SpaceX's Cargo Dragon delivered a range of science experiments from biomedical tests to scientific research on shoe design for Adidas. It's the company's 20th resupply mission to the station and the last for the first version of the capsule. The company plans to use an updated version of the spacecraft based on its Crew Dragon for future cargo missions. The capsule will remain attached to the station for about a month before returning bringing completed science experiments back to Earth for further investigations. Speaking of SpaceX, the company signed a deal with Axiom Space to transport private astronauts to the International Space Station. SpaceX's Crew Dragon will send three private astronauts and a commander trained by the company to the station for a more than week-long stay at the orbiting outpost. NASA recently relaxed rules for commercial use of the station, paving the way for space tourists to visit the ISS. Axiom says the mission could launch as soon as mid-2021, definitely something to keep our eyes on as the market for space tourism grows. You can find these stories and more on our website, wmfe.org space, and give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. 
Jocelyn Bell Burnell is credited with the groundbreaking discovery of a new type of star, a pulsar. I recently caught up with Burnell during a visit to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach. We spoke about her discovery and her continued effort to advocate for women and minorities in STEM. Burnell begins the conversation describing just what radio astronomy is. Radio astronomy is studying stars and galaxies through the radio waves that they send out. Um, Astronomy these days has stretched a lot away from the optical. Astronomy started as being what you could see with your eyes using light, but we now know that stars and galaxies give a whole swathe of radiation. So there's radio, there's microwave, there's infrared, ultraviolet, X-ray, gamma ray. Mm -hmm. And to further confuse the picture, in the last few years we've discovered a whole new spectrum called gravitational radiation, which is a different set again. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. Well, take us back to 1967 when you made your breakthrough discovery um, and discovered the pulsar. Tell me what you were doing and, and uh, how you went on to find this and how this kind of changed the way we, we kind of viewed the universe. So I'm a grad student at the University of Cambridge in England doing radio astronomy, spending most of my time building some new equipment or one of a group of half a dozen of us, building some new equipment. And I'm the first person to use this new radio telescope. I'm responsible for debugging it. So I'm being very careful to make sure I understand everything that it seems to be picking up. What does it look like? Can you explain what a radio telescope looks like? They they vary. Um, Radio telescopes these days tend to be big dish-shaped structures, But this is more like um, an agricultural framework. Lots and lots of wires strung between wooden posts. Okay. Yeah, not very attractive. (laughs) So so you're debugging this thing uh, and and take us from there. Yep. What what I'm meant to be doing and what I, I do do is finding a whole lot of quasars. They were the really hot, sexy topic at that time and very new. And we didn't know too many of them. So my main role was to find more. And I did. Um, I increased the number of quasars we knew by about a factor of 10. So that was good. But because I was debugging the equipment as well, making sure I understood it, I stumbled across a signal that didn't totally make sense. And it wasn't very helpful. It would disappear for weeks on end and then reappear unannounced. Turned, Turned out when I finally got it nailed that it was a string of pulses about one and a third seconds apart. So it's going dit, 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 which suspiciously like some man, human being doing something. Uh, But it wasn't because it kept its place amongst the stars. Comes back 23 hours, 56 minutes later. And human beings work a 24-hour day, not a 23-hour, 56-minute day. So it was really, really puzzling. And uh, I was working with my thesis advisor. He came in to help to try and understand what all this funny signal was. We made very slow progress until I suddenly found another one in a different part of the sky. Uh So then we've got two objects going dit, 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 dit. They went at slightly different speeds, so they looked like the same family but different objects. And then I found a third and a fourth And this really begins to look like some new kind of star. Uh And it's what we now call pulsars, pulsating radio stars. Uh And so because 
they're pulsating, they're making that dit, dit, dit. Mm-hmm. How did you kind of look into it further? Well, well, there are some tests you could do. Um, my thesis advisor was worried that it was little green men signaling to us. Were you? No, I wasn't too worried about that. And by the time you got a second, a third and a fourth, it it can't be little green men. There aren't that number of little <laughs> green men all using a rather stupid technique to signal to planet Earth. So, But one of the tests you can do when you have a regular beat is see if there's what we call Doppler shifts. Uh-huh. So is the thing orbiting something? Because when it's coming towards us, the pulses will pile up on each other more. And when it's moving away from us, the pulses will spread out more. Um, this sounds high tech, but actually every five-year-old knows about this. So imagine I'm a five-year-old playing on the floor and I go, Neow! I'm playing with a car, uh-huh. a racing car. And the racing car changes note as it goes past us. Uh-huh. Because as it's coming towards us, the waves pile up on each other. As it's going away from us, the waves spread out from each other. So that's Doppler shift. So five-year-olds know about Doppler shift. (laughs) So we looked for a Doppler shift to see if it was moving, and we couldn't see any movement. So uh, another thing we managed to do was get an estimate of the distance, and it turned out to come to be something like 200 light years. Uh That puts us way beyond the sun and the planets, but well within our own galaxy. Uh So it's something within our own galaxy. And it took quite a while before we finally worked out what was happening, but it turns out that they're very, very compact stars, Uh which we now call neutron stars. And they're spinning rapidly, they have strong magnetic field, and they sweep a beam of radio waves around the sky, a bit like a lighthouse sweeps a beam of light around the horizon. Uh And every time the beam shines on you, you see a pulse or a flash. I've got a assume that a discovery like that fundamentally changes the way scientists understand astronomy and our universe. What was the reaction to this finding? It doesn't so much fundamentally change as add to. It shows us that there's more things than we had dreamed of that are out there. Um, And the big question for the next six months was, how does this relate to what we already know? So we're busy trying to fit these things into the scheme of things we know. And we had the answer in about six months' time. Um, It's the remains of a big star that ends its life by exploding, catastrophically. But in the explosion, the core gets compressed and turns into one of these objects. So, yeah. So a a discovery like this, it took radio astronomy to to find it, uh, Mm -hmm. to observe it, uh, since since the 60s and 70s, how did radio astronomy evolve, jumping off from you know discoveries like this? Yeah. What changed? Yeah. The, the techniques, of course, have got better and better. Uh, we've got more sensitive receivers, so we see further, we see fainter things. We've also stretched the wavelength regime a lot. We now work, for instance, with millimeter waves. Uh, you need a very dry site for that, but if you go up a high mountain, it's usually fairly dry. And moving into slightly different wave bands like that always opens up unexpected things. So with millimetre wave astronomy, we're studying how stars and, well, particularly how planets form around stars. And we're studying what molecules there are up in space. Um, There's 
fantastic array of molecules up in space in some of the darker clouds like the Orion Nebula, for instance. I'm thinking to radio telescopes that have come online recently, like the Arecibo, and there's one in China. Are we kind of entering a new era of, of radio astronomy with these these massive, these giant uh, mm. dishes coming online? Yes, the Chinese have built one that's 500 metres across. It's huge, right? <laughs> it is huge. It is very huge indeed, yes. These things have much greater sensitivity, so they see more and see further. Uh-huh. Um, more detail, uh, weaker things, and see uh-huh. them further into space. So, yep, the, su- the subject progresses steadily. Uh-huh. Are you optimistic about the future of, of radio astronomy? I'm optimistic about the future of astronomy in general. There's lots of exciting developments going on in all wave bands. So it's a very exciting time. I've read you have a little bit of skepticism relying on algorithms and computer models to look for these things that are in the sky, where it was you who you know plotted out these, these pulses. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Are, are, are you yeah. worried about the future of, of relying on computers too much for these things? I wouldn't want to st- overstress that. Um, there are a number of big new telescopes building. Some of them are going to produce, well, most of them are going to produce tons of data. And the data analysis is going to have to be done by computers, Um, machine learning, intelligent machines, and we're going to have to teach the computers what to look for. The one pitfall that we're still thinking about how to avoid is you can teach the computers to look for what we know exists, but what about the things we don't know exists? Um, The pulsars we didn't know existed, for example. So how do we ensure that we don't miss things because they're of an unexpected nature. Uh-huh. So that's that's an interesting question. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a good number of people working on that, and uh-huh. I think it'll come out okay in the end, but it may be a bit glitchy to begin with. What's happening in astronomy now that's particularly exciting to you? Um, what, what, uh, what do you look forward to? What kind of makes you smile when you look at the research and data? There's actually a huge amount going on. Um, I think there's a couple of things I'd flag up. One is we have opened up a whole new spectrum Mm -hmm. called gravitational radiation. It's in its early days. It's quite hard to do, but they are doing it. The data is rolling in. And, for example, it has showed us that there are black holes that we didn't know of a mass range we didn't know existed. So there's stacks of fascinating stuff coming out of gravitational radiation. The other thing that's happening is we know that the universe is expanding our two best ways of measuring the rate of expansion of the universe are getting increasingly in disagreement uh-huh. because the measurements have got better and better, the uncertainties have got smaller and smaller, and there's now clear blue water between those two methods. <laughs> the gravitational radiation actually will help. It will provide a third method. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Not this year, next year, but in the not-too-distant future, it will also be able to help us understand the rate of expansion of the universe. Uh So that discrepancy may get resolved by gravitational radiation in a year or two. Is there a a part of astronomy that you think is not getting enough attention or that we need to spend more resources investigating? I think at the moment we're doing okay. One one worries a bit about the future. Um, Governments have to be sympathetic to this kind of... Um, abstract, pure research. Uh, It does deliver things uh, downstream. 
but it's not immediately, obviously, solving some of the world's issues. Uh But I think it's important to do it. I think it's inspiring. It brings kids into science and engineering, which we badly need. Uh, So I think there's great spin-off from it. Jumping off of that, you've had a scholarship fund set up for women and minority students to study STEM. How did your past experience kind of shape your passion for advocacy? Well, this was a a breakthrough prize, $3 million, that I decided I would like to uh, use to encourage people from underrepresented groups to do research in physics. So that's how it's come about, and, and the first ones will be appointed very soon now. I was a minority, an underrepresented minority in physics when I was a grad student. And I think that was partly why I was working so hard and so thoroughly. So I hope that with other uh, underrepresented groups becoming more strongly represented, more diversity, the subject will get even healthier and more productive. Uh So that's my thinking behind it. What advice do you have to um, to women and minorities getting into the field now? I mean, what, what kind of wisdom can you pass on to this next generation? Keep hanging in there, work hard, and you'll win. What challenges do you think um, women still face in this industry? Are, are there still systemic roadblocks that need to be kind of broken down? Yes, there are still issues for women and other minorities. Um, white males have established the culture and it suits most white males Um, other categories of people do their best to fit in we're now recognizing that diversity in a work body a, a research group whatever is really really important that it makes the group much more successful and so there are now measures to try and increase diversity in the academic workplace and probably also in the industrial and commercial workplace. Uh-huh. Are you happy with the momentum that that movement has? Time will tell. It's, you know, I'm getting to be an old woman and I'd like to see change in my lifetime, but whether I do or not, we'll see. Uh, and finally, Jocelyn, you're, you're here at Embry-Riddle uh, for a Women in STEM conference. You're talking to many groups of these uh, underrepresented people in in this group. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing that you'd like these young people to take away uh, from your experience uh, and your visit here? I think to have courage, to hang in there and do good work and you'll win. Jocelyn, this was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much indeed too. That was Jocelyn Bell Burnell, an astrophysicist who co-discovered the first radio pulsars in 1967. We spoke at the campus of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Still to come, keeping our dirty germs off other planets. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. As we search for life in the solar system, it's important to keep our dirty germs off other worlds. Space agencies have adopted rules of what's called planetary protections, the protocols in place to make sure our spacecraft are squeaky clean so they don't contaminate other planets or moons. But as more governments join the effort to explore our solar system and private companies begin exploring places like the moon and asteroids, who's in charge of keeping the place clean? And why are pristine worlds so important to scientific discovery? I took those questions to our expert panel on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. We're joined by Josh Caldwell, Jim Cooney, and Addie Dove, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida, and they also host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Addie Dove, 
kicks off the conversation. So what is planetary protection? It's not like putting up a big barrier around the Earth necessarily, right? It's not creating some sort of force field or armor protection around the Earth. But that would be super cool, (laughs) and it's what I often think about when I hear planetary protection. But So planetary protection is this idea of there's two aspects, either both forward uh, protection and backward protection. So forward planetary protection is that we don't want to contaminate places we go. Um, and then backward protection is we don't if we're bringing samples back from comets or the moon or Mars, we don't want to bring contamination and potentially biological specimens here to Earth that could contaminate and cause problems. Um, and so planetary protection is this idea that we, for scientific reasons, we want to be able to study pristine samples and pristine environments that haven't been changed uh, by our human contaminants. And especially that's true when we're looking for like origins of life and life on other planets and things like that. Um, we don't want to take our own stuff with us and then be like, oh, look what we found. It looks exactly like this Earth thing. Right. Um, by contaminants, do we just mean biological contaminants or are you talking about other things as well? For the most part, it's biological contaminants. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So any sort of biological organisms, there's like chemical contaminants that we're not super worried about because we always know but, we're going to be bringing chemistry but, back. But we're totally littering Mars already. I mean, we're just like right. trumping mm-hmm. aeroshells and yeah. dead rovers and parachutes just willy nilly on the surface of Mars. But before we do that, we have to like do all this protection stuff on the ground. So those are built in clean rooms. Mm-hmm. Those are usually like heated to some high level. Um, and most of the way we just check right now is we look for spores of certain bacteria that we can look for mm-hmm. um, on these spacecraft, which is sort of a, we've been doing that since the Voyager days of looking and seeing what spacecraft sort of have contamination on them and trying to reduce that by doing very clean environments and certain cleaning protocols and things like so that. So it's squeaky clean junk we're leaving on Mars. It is. Exactly. Yeah. It is. Yeah, sterilized. But I tell you what, <laughs> bacteria are hardy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also a lot of bacteria and things like that that we can't necessarily find in the lab that potentially, or maybe tardigrades or something, that could potentially be on some of these planetary surfaces. Yes. Who, who's responsible for overseeing planetary protection? Is, is, it, is the onus on... on the agencies that are sending stuff, or is there well, a global galactic czar that is making sure all of these spacecraft are clean? Uh, galactic planetary protection czar would yeah. be the greatest job title ever. <laughs> uh, there is a treaty uh, governing these things, and countries are signatories to that treaty, but they are then individually responsible for seeing that they adhere to the terms of the treaty, and there's not really a mechanism in place to deal with what happens if somebody just says, no, I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the Outer Space Treaty. And it uh, generally, NASA has set the guidelines for what the sort of contamination and the protection rules should be. Um, There's an organization called COSPAR uh, that sort of governs that, that a lot of these other countries look to as well. It's the Committee on Space Research. Yes, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, Outgrowth of the Cold War days, actually, Mm -hmm. to uh, span the globe. And, And they're always updating and revising and improving these rules as we learn more about the places we're going to. So as water is discovered underneath the surfaces of some of the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, then all of a sudden we're like, oh, that place I thought couldn't possibly have life now becomes a potentially habitable place. So we want to be super careful about that. So missions that go to Jupiter and Mars then have to follow some rules Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine that as, you know, folks are planning on human missions to the moon and Mars, you know, this planetary protection is really going to have to be thought about long and hard because we are dirty species. (laughs) (laughs) Me? (laughs) We weren't looking at you, Jim. (laughs) Nobody was looking at Jim, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's obviously at some point kind of an impossible dilemma Mm -hmm. to solve because we are biological. We 
uh, are also in some way sort of symbiotic with our uh, biome. We carry a bunch of bacteria with us, and you can do your best to try to keep that contained within your habitat and everything, but at a certain point, we're going to be contaminating. Mm-hmm. Life yeah. finds a way. <laughs> oh, yeah. And when we went to the moon, um, there were some protections put in place for going there, but not too many. Um, the moon is technically classified as like a category one body still right now where we're supposed to not contaminate it when we send spacecraft. Um, but as we know, most places on the moon aren't habitable to life, which is what that would sort of be interested in. Um, and so there's most places on the moon we can probably go and not be too concerned about it. Places like the lunar poles where there's water, which we've talked about, might have have um, some concern of mm-hmm. c- causing contamination there. Um, but I think that, so like there's been this new report out that says here's some updated guidelines and we need to sort of look every few years and update them as we get new technologies and as we learn more about different bodies and maybe have different places on planetary bodies be designated like, okay, humans can go here and spread your biomass. Here's the um, dumpster. of right. the dumpster. <laughs> you can grow your potatoes and whatever you want. <laughs> right. um, but then uh, over here, you have to keep it safe and pristine for science and for yeah. studying. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll, that could work for a little while, but Mars has got an atmosphere Mm-hmm. Yep. It's going to move stuff around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And even before the human missions, you know, as, as you mentioned, Addy, you know, there there's this focus on sample returns. So you want to make sure that what we're bringing back is the most pristine sample, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, – for we're – Soon we're going to be bringing back samples from a couple of comets uh, or from a couple of asteroids um, that have typically been very cold. So we're looking at a lot of sample return protocols for how do you keep those samples pristine. All the lunar samples we brought back, we kept in very just sort of clean, dry air and kept them relatively pristine. But if we bring back things from Mars or comets or asteroids, we need to have cold facilities. We need to have other places that we can sort of like sterilize things before we put them in. Um, So there's a lot of like questions about how we do that. And we really don't have all the answers right now, but there is some um, research like that goes on in Antarctica, and they have samples that they try to keep pristine mm. from there. So there's lots of other research we can look at to sort of in, uh, mm. advise how we proceed. And finally, how do commercial companies kind of throw a wrench in all these plans here? As as you know, we saw that the, the yes. space or the space IL uh, Bearsheet lander was on the moon, and and other companies are looking at asteroids and and lunar ambitions. How does that kind of mess everything up? It does. It does. Yeah. I mean, now there's all these companies and lots and lots more governments than used to do it, right? So global cooperation on something like this is not an easy task. Global cooperation on anything, as your listeners, I'm sure, well know, is next to impossible. This is going to be challenging. It's, so it's going to be a, a very dirty future for humans exploring the solar system, we, right? We're, we're contaminating. There's no getting around it. We're going we're gonna to contaminate. And the master contaminator, Josh Caldwell, along with Jim Cooney and Addie Dove, they are the hosts of Walk About the Galaxy podcast and planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. If you've got a question for I'd Like to Know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org. Find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet podcast. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Production assistance was provided by Elizabeth Gondar. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org slash space. Never miss an episode and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast feed on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.